2: Thanks for tuning in. And welcome to the December 30th, 2019, New Year's Week edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I am Ralph Cole Jr. You certainly are. Well, Ralph Cole Jr., how did you get in here?
3: Well, I got in here through a very special invitation from you, MTG. Thank you. You're welcome. And tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a prolific blackter here in Hollywood. (sighs) That's a black actor. Yeah. For those of you that didn't pick up on that. (laughs) (laughs) Me. Michael and I have known each other for years, bonded wonderfully, and have stayed friends all this time. And now we work together.
2: Yes, we do. And Ralph is one of the most prolific, talented, vivacious, wonderful actors that you'll ever meet in your life. So get to know his work. Where do we find you?
3: I am Ralph Cole Jr. on Facebook. And Instagram as well.
2: Right. Wonderful. Thank Wonderful. you, Michael. You're welcome. Now, tonight we have a very special Where's
3: Wayne in which Wayne Sampson hits the carpet at the 2019 Real Abilities Film Festival
2: and the Outfest Legacy Awards. He's everywhere. And this Thanksgiving, I was in the purple state of North Carolina having Thanksgiving dinner with my nephew and his husband and their kids. And I was grateful. And really blessed to be able to share their story
3: with storytellers. But before all that, we have to spill some tea. The Honest Tea.
2: Well, we've got a lot to talk about. First of all, we have some sad news. Because we had a couple of musical icons pass away. December 24th, Ms. Allie Willis, she was the songwriter behind the theme for the TV sitcom Friends and hits for Earth, Wind and & Fire and the Pet Shop Boys. And she died on December 24th, Christmas Eve Day. Some of her enduring hits for Earth, Wind & Fire are September from 1978. She wrote, co-wrote the smash hit Boogie Wonderland. She was born in Detroit. She was the daughter of Nathan Willis, a scrap dealer, and his wife Rose, a schoolteacher. She described how she learned the basics of songwriting by sitting outside the Motown studios in Detroit, where she was able to listen to the music vibrating through the walls. Had I grown up anywhere else, I would not ever have been a songwriter, she told the New York Times.
3: Wow. But yeah, she is a legend and will be sadly missed.
2: Yeah, you know, and just imagine sitting outside the walls of Motown and actually
3: hearing the
2: vibration of the recordings that are being done. Right. That's amazing. And that
3: got into her system, and then she emanated, therefore, forever, in a- perpetuity. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, and,
2: now, there were some hard times for her, too. And I like, this is a wonderful, wonderful obituary from The Guardian, and they pointed out something really important about her life, and I think that you'll find this inspiring, too, because we all go through tough times. Having survived a period of low-paid jobs and living off food stamps, Willis moved to Los Angeles in 1977, signed a publishing deal with a and among other writing milestones, she wrote with Danny Sambello, the 1985 top 10 hit Neutron Dance for the Pointer Sisters, and the song's success hugely boosted by its inclusion in the movie Beverly Hills Cop. Another willis Sambello composition, Stir It Up, was performed by Patti LaBelle in the film and won Willis her first Grammy Award in 1986. She collaborated with the Pet Shop Boys on What Have I Done to Deserve This, the song that gave Dusty Springfield a late career relaunch when it reached number two in both the U.S. and the U.K. in 1987. And in 2018, just last year, Willis was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Wow. So, you know, she went from food stamps to the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Fabulous. Yes. So Now, our second loss. And let me just do the little intro for this wonderful gentleman that we all dearly, dearly miss. IMRU executive producer extraordinaire Steve Pride. said it best when I spoke with him just yesterday about Jerry Herman's passing. He said, what theater kid hasn't been inspired by this man? I couldn't have said it better.
3: I just got goose pimples.
2: Yeah, me too. You know, I was doing When Pigs Fly in Palm Springs at the Palm Canyon Theater in 2004. And this little man comes backstage right before the show. And I look over to my left and it's Jerry Herman. Jerry Herman was living in Palm Springs at the time. And he just wanted to wish us all a very, very good show. Now, I was so nervous, now knowing that Jerry was in the audience, but what a thrill to have this legend, Hello Dolly, Mame, La Caja Fall, Mac and Mabel, to see me perform, little Michael Taylor Gray from Canton, Mm -hmm. Ohio, and you also had the pleasure of having seen you perform.
3: Yes, at Musical Theater West in Long Beach, California, I was doing a production of La Caja Fall. I've had the honor of doing that production three times, and... Jerry Herman came backstage to compliment my performance as Jacob. And to have the Broadway legend sitting across from me watching my performance was, as Steve Pride said, a theater kid's dream.
2: Wasn't oh, it wonderful? We've all been touched by him in some way. And there was a wonderful obituary, just, just a big, huge thank you from the BBC.com, from their entertainment and arts section, about Jerry and his life and his impact. And Jerry said about, he was asked what his favorite, uh, maybe what his favorite piece of work was. And he said, my musicals are my children. So I should never say I prefer this to that, he explained. But I just have never tired Of Mac and Mabel. I guess you kind of love the one that didn't make it. Hmm. You know, it wasn't his greatest hit, but that's the one he held closest to his heart. And I say, well, Jerry Herman, you made it, kid. You really made it. And we're so lucky just to be a part of it with you. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the news. And since we are here in Hollywood, it's important that our inclusiveness of the LGBTQI community has really grown in the television world. We're at like 10.2% of all characters this last year, according to GLAAD. But there's a problem with our representation in film. So I found an article from Variety. Well, actually, it was in uh, LGBTQ. Uh, dot com, But this article, they got it from Variety from December 23rd, 2019, and it's entitled, What Keeps Hollywood from Meaningful LGBTQ Representation? What's happening with movies? Why aren't we represented? You know, in the new Star Wars movie, in the final minutes of the movie, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert for the new Star Wars movie that's out. It's the final chapter of that nine movie series over like 47 years this has been going on. In the final minutes of the movie, Commander Daisy, Amanda Lawrence, a minor supporting character who first appeared in 2017's Star Wars The Last Jedi, walks up to another woman in the resistance and kisses her on the lips. The moment marks the first same-sex kiss ever in a Star Wars movie, and a rare example of any kind of romantic same-sex affection expressed in a global tentpole. It's just that, a moment, only seconds long, with zero impact on the story and featuring characters who barely register within the vast tapestry of the Star Wars creative galaxy. What are
3: your thoughts on that? Fear of pleasure is what I think this all boils down to. Anything in society that is pleasurable, like alcohol, marijuana, sex, is often stifled by the higher ups and by our government. And when I read this article and asked myself those questions, why aren't there more? LGBTQ characters in mainstream film. It's fear. And what is the fear? It's the fear of our culture. And it's the fear of our traditions. And gay people are fun. Aren't we though? And passionate. And a lot of society is scared by that.
2: Oh yes. Looking at more of the kind of digging in to the actual numbers of what's going on in the landscape of film of the last year, only 13 of the LGBTQ inclusive films released by the major studios in 2018 passed the Vito Russo test, the barometer created by LGBTQ advocacy organization, GLAAD to measure consequential queer representation in film, similar to the Bechdel test for female movie characters. Now of those 13 movies, only three Deadpool two, Bohemian Rhapsody and Crazy Rich Asians were major tentpoles with a robust global release. Keep this in mind. Now, this is not going to be a surprise, right? Disney has been particularly negligent with LGBTQ characters in films. It was the only major studio in 2018 to have zero queer representation, according to GLAAD. And this year has scarcely been any better. Avengers Endgame did contain an openly LGBTQ character, but once again, it was a minor Figure A civilian played by director Joe Russo, rather than one of Marvel's legion of superheroes. And Toy Story 4, meanwhile, contained a lesbian couple that appeared on screen so briefly that audiences could be forgiven for not noticing them at all. And how do we
3: identify them as a lesbian couple?
2: Now I need to go back and watch Toy Story 4 to find them in a crowd scene and figure out how that... Yeah, they don't go on to explain how that was, right? I think a lot of it comes down to just... What they feel is marketability, and they did point out in the article that part of the reason you don't see a lot of gay characters in major roles is because if you put a major character in, you identify them as gay or LGBTQI+, plus uh, LGBTQ, the first thing that the suits ask is, well, why does this character have to be gay? Why in the story justifies this person having to be gay? As if you have to justify their sexuality when they're gay, but you don't have to justify
3: it when they're straight. Exactly. So why is that? Progress is happening, but it's very slow. And as the article pointed out also, the major movie studios are more inclusive for minorities and for women.
2: We're making some progress there. The, and but there are also considerations in, in some other countries. What other countries did they point China out? and Russia. Yeah. So And we know their history of human
3: rights advocacy, and, and how are they doing with regards to LGBTQ? Well, they're promoting oppression. And they're saluting our government for promoting. It's hard for us to make progress. Yeah. We keep having a door slammed in front of us or a wall put in front of us. But we just keep pushing forward. We have and to. J.J. J. Abrams tried his best to include us. And he did in a small way. If J.J. J. Abrams can't do it. Yeah it's just going to take longer and we and all we can do like any other minority is to push forward and stay strong and stay present.
2: Now, it's still unclear, however, how far concerns about restricting LGBTQ characters for international distribution ultimately trickles down into the creative process here. But we do have some hope. There's interest, let's see what's coming up. In 2020, the first big test of that conviction about including gay characters in major roles will be Marvel Studios' The Eternals, due to open November 2020, which will include a central gay character, a truly historic first, for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But until these characters are here and queer, we'll never know if audiences will get used to it. So we press on. And speaking of pressing on, in politics, we had an interesting goings on. Here we have another career diplomat who's leaving his post. He was recalled, Daniel Foote. Daniel Foote, U.S. ambassador to Zambia. He was recalled for criticizing the country's anti-gay laws. This is from an article in LGBTQ Nation by Daniel Villarreal, criticizing the Christian-majority nation. The U.S. ambassador, Daniel Foote, as you stated, wrote, I cannot imagine Jesus would have used bestiality comparisons or referred to his fellow human beings as dogs or worse. So what are your thoughts on this? Another diplomat being pressured by an oppressive leader of a country telling Donald Trump, "Uh, this guy's speaking out against the way we do things here. You need to bring him back home.
3: Yeah, it's tried and true for what we are all experiencing with our current government. There's bullying. And that bullying, it all starts from the top. And the bullying is being trickled down. Ambassadors like a Daniel Foote that wants to express his opinion is being squelched because it's not to the likability. Right, of... and he
2: was appointed by Donald Trump. You know, he made a very good point. I'm gonna say this, this is a statement we should do a hashtag on. Hashtag, open pocketbooks, closed mouths. And that's what the Zambian leader wants. You know, Zambian, their president, Edgar Lungu, you know, that's what he wants. We've given them $500 million in annual American debt-free support. Five hundred million, and
3: he's actually willing to to forfeit that. He's willing to give up five hundred million dollars because he wants to maintain oppression to gay people.
2: So, what do you say? Would you take that five hundred million back? Would you stop sending it?
3: I would stop sending it and keep it for us.
2: Post haste.
3: And yeah, you're giving a gift to somebody who is not appreciative. Right. Right. Right.
2: Now, and on top of that, the little cherry on top of this whole little sour Sunday is Secretary of State Mike Pompeo considers anti gay laws a form of religious freedom. I consider those code words for U.S. state sanctioned homophobia, abuse, torture, and killing. It's not right. And the Trump administration has said that its financial aid to foreign countries will no longer depend on LGBTQ rights. Why? Because it's a change from the Obama administration. And anything that the first African-American president does or did, what's he want to do? Exactly. What's he want to do? Take it away. Absolutely. And so make sure you register the vote. We've got to get this man out of office as soon as possible because the Senate's not going to take him out from the, uh, for the trial for uh, impeachment. Once again, it's fear of pleasure. Fear, fear of pleasure. Don't fear pleasure. I certainly don't. Yes. And I know you don't, Ralph Gould. No, and embrace spe- it. And, and speaking of embracing, we're going to end on a really positive, loving note because family has been a real big thing that I've been focused on with storytellers. And we found a story in the LGBTQ nation by one of my favorite correspondents there, Alex Bollinger. And Alex came across these lesbian moms. They adopted three brothers to keep them from being split apart. They adopted one child, and then they got a call that he had a six-week-old sibling who needed a home, and they immediately said yes. And then not long after, they got a call saying, there's another child that's in between these two that needs a home. And they said yes. They didn't want to split these boys apart. They wanted them to grow up and have each other. At the end of the day, these lesbian moms wanted these two boys to have each other to lean on in the years coming. And when I hear of all these stories about immigration policies and this and tearing families apart and putting kids in cages and parents in cages and separating families, and here we have this wonderful story about women, people, brothers and sisters in our community reaching out to keep siblings together. It's wonderful. Thank you for joining me this week.
3: Thank you for including me, Michael. I appreciate it. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I am. Are you? I am. And that's the Honest Tea. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this
4: quick break. The Christmas Special, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. One magazine was the first gay publication with a national circulation. Its first issue was published in January 1953. The December 1954 issue cover sported an illustration of Santa Claus wearing high heels, floating in the air surrounded by jingle bells and snowflakes. Inside the magazine, short stories of contest winners were printed with a list of the winners. First place was Jody Shotwell, who wrote The Gateway. She received a $25 cash prize. Also in the issue was a special holiday rate for subscriptions to the magazine given as gifts. Two subscriptions for $4 mailed in a plain unsealed envelope, or two subscriptions for $6 mailed in first class unsealed. Single issues sold for 25 cents. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Roby Martin.
5: Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you?
3: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I am Ralph Cole, Jr. I know what you're thinking. How do I look so fine? No. Where's Wayne?
6: Oh. Tonight, I am at the Real Abilities Film Festival opening premiere of the Peanut Butter Falcon. We are talking to everyone walking the carpet, celebrities and directors and producers. The Real Abilities Film Festival is the largest festival in the United States dedicated to promoting awareness and appreciation of the lives, stories, and artistic expressions of people with disabilities. It was founded more than 10 years ago in New York City, and now it's held annually in multiple cities throughout North America. The festival presents international and award-winning films by and about people with disabilities in multiple locations throughout each hosting city. Post-screening discussions and other engaging programs bring together the community to explore, discuss, embrace, and celebrate the diversity of our shared human experience.
7: I'm Steven David Simon. I'm the Executive Director of the City of Los Angeles Department on Disability. We're the hosts of the Real Abilities Film Festival LA 2019. We've done this two years in a row. This is our effort at the city to make sure, one, the general public really knows about the authentic lives of people with disabilities. And also from a sort of workforce development standpoint, Hollywood needs to be hiring people with disabilities in front of the camera and behind the camera. All the different kinds of jobs that go into making TV or radio or film needs to be hiring more people with disabilities. And the authentic lives of people with disabilities need to be in stories a lot more.
6: So have you seen the film, The Peanut Butter Falcon, yet?
7: This film is extraordinary. I've seen it before. It's a sweet story. It's a beautiful story. It's a powerful story about, again, authenticity and disability and humanity. And it's the kind of story that we support.
6: And do you want to offer anything to anyone listening that may have a challenge and they are trying to overcome it in the community?
7: All sorts of things. I mean, I want to answer that two different ways. There are a lot of people that struggle with our society and their role and place in it. People with disabilities broadly face a lot of stigma and discrimination. I do a lot of work in the LGBT community, LGBTQ community. Um, we face a lot of the stigma and discrimination. I think both different communities are having their own civil rights movements that are very, very similar but you know what? Almost no one talks about where they overlap. There are a lot of LGBTQ folk with disabilities um, who don't talk about their disability or they're in the closet still about their sexuality. And there's a lot of mental health struggle. There are high rates of suicide in both communities. And we need to be addressing all those issues by talking about them honestly and making this community a safe place for everyone that's San Angelino. Well, thank you for being here. And we'll have to invite you back on another show. Uh, I'm <laughs> <you laughs>
6: so Thank you so much. You have you a good night. Here.
3: Albert Berger, and I'm producer of Peanut Butter Falcon.
6: How did you get involved with it?
3: Well, I uh, was sent the script by a close friend, and my partner, Ron Yerkes, and I read it and uh, saw a little um, test reel that these guys did, Mike and Tyler, and I thought I got to be part of this.
6: And is this your first film with someone with a disability in it?
3: It really is, I think. Yeah, it won't be my last, though.
6: How excited are you to be involved with
0: it?
3: It's doing great and I'm thrilled to be involved with it. We, years ago, made a movie called Little Miss Sunshine and this is as close as we've come to that experience. Uh, And I'm really happy to be
1: involved with a movie that gives people hope. I'm Michael Schwartz and I'm one of the writers and directors of The Peanut Butter Falcon.
6: What encouraged you to make The Peanut Butter Falcon?
1: The star of the movie, Zach Sagan, has been a friend of Tyler and I's for eight years. And we saw that he had a talent. He was a really great actor who dedicated his life towards performance and movies and wasn't getting the shots that we thought he deserved. So we decided to partner with him and tie our rafts together and, and go down the river together.
6: Can you give our audience a little bit about the film?
1: Yeah, the film's an adventure story where a guy with Down syndrome breaks out of a retirement home and goes on an adventure to meet his favorite wrestler. And he ends up meeting up with a small-time outlaw on the run, played by Shia LaBeouf, and uh, they have the time of their lives.
6: What's your relationship with Shia?
1: I think Shia's a genius. I know he elevated our movie. I assume he does the same on every project he's in, and he he cares a lot, and I care a lot too. I like working with people that care.
6: Why is it important that this festival exists?
1: I think um, this festival existing is sort of like our movie existing. I think people haven't been giving opportunities to very talented, hardworking people and um, audiences for the work that those people do. How important is
6: it to add disability in terms of diversity in Hollywood and filmmaking, especially in the mainstream?
1: I mean, it's interesting. To me, it's, I just love Zach so much. Like I almost like, I, I wanted to make a movie with him because he was talented not even because he was disabled it was just he was the best actor I knew I think there's a lot of people we saw as you get into the business of it that were afraid to give us money to make the movie because they hadn't seen it be successful before and I like one of the things our, our movie's been out now for three months and it's made its money back for its investors which I'm very grateful for but also I think when the business part of show business sees that a movie that stars somebody with down syndrome or a different disability can make money they're liable to do it again And
6: are you hoping the film will uh, prove all the naysayers wrong?
1: I mean, I think it already did.
6: So has it been in a lot of festivals or have you gotten anyone to pick it up?
1: It is the uh, highest grossing independent film of the year. I think we have already just crossed $20 million at the box office. So it's interesting. I think right now with the diversification of media, it's hard for things to like really break through. But I think our film did.
6: My name is Dr. Godfagan. And I hear you're a phenomenal actor. Has it been a challenge for you getting to this film and finding it? Uh, yes. And how did you overcome that challenge? I will say um, everything, um, but I could, uh, you know, manage to do it. The director, his name is Michael Schwartz, he said he loved you, believed in you, that you were the best actor for the job. What do you have to say about that? I would say, um, I would say about, um, about Mike Schwartz. Mike is a wonderful person, and,
8: and Mike always be, you know, generous, and he does work with me a lot.
6: What are you hoping for your next move? What film do you hope to start in?
8: I cannot say anything about it right now, but it doesn't have to wait.
6: Well, I am excited to see what's next for you. So thank you for being here, and I'll, I'll look for your next movie. I could dick him. Tonight we're here talking with Jerry Jewell. So what brings you out tonight? Obviously, The Real Abilities. Um, how close are you working with them?
8: I started being involved with Real Ability when I was an infant in New York City years ago. So, this is exciting to see it out here in California. Wow. They're growing. Yes, big time.
6: Have you seen the movie, The Peanut Butter Falcon?
8: I've heard wonderful things about it. I'm looking forward to seeing it.
6: So, you were on a primetime show, normally are cast you with the facts of life. How far do you feel like we've came? Have we come far in, in inclusion with people with disabilities, or do you think there's a lot more to go?
8: I think we've made a lot of headway. There's been a lot of improvement, but we need to even go farther. Yeah.
6: And what's your advice on how to go further?
8: To look at qualified people with disabilities. You're not hiring disabilities. Why would you hire a cerebral palsy? You know, hey, I've been looking for cerebral policy all my life. <laughs> there you are. You know, you want to hire qualified people who happen to have disabilities. Give us a chance. Absolutely.
6: What advice would you give to people who may have a disability or feel that like they're not good enough to be in the films or movies or maybe getting a lot of rejection?
8: Get used to it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thicken your skin. Thicken your skin. You know, it's interesting because I started out a stand-up comic, and you know very well that there are going to be nights where the audience is not going to like you. So I had to learn early on to thicken my skin. You've got to. You've got to know who you are, have self-respect, regardless of how many no's you get. There's a magical yes.
9: My name is R.J. Mitty. You know me from uh, Breaking Bad and Switch to Birth and maybe a couple other things. So. What was your character on Breaking Bad? I played Walter White Jr. Yeah, it's still a little drugs maybe.
6: Maybe. And um, what um, brings you out tonight? How close involved are you with Real Abilities?
9: Intimately involved, but i am um, always been a big supporter of Real Abilities and what it means to the cinema and to the disability community of just advocating and bringing awareness and... They do such an amazing job advocating and putting people out there, and I'm a big believer in that. So I'm here to support and always willing to be support. So,
6: Did you feel like you had any naysayers and stuff on your way to getting your bigger roles?
9: Oh, you always have naysayers. I don't think you ever not have naysayers. I think the hardest thing is, is maintaining the mindset of not everyone's going to like you. It's okay not to be liked, and it's okay to have those no's, because you gotta learn to accept the no's, and grow with those no's, and uh, and you're always gonna have them, but not let them beat you down, but to grow from them, and that's kind of always the mindset I try to keep. Every once in a while, it doesn't keep, <laughs> but uh, it happens. And have
6: you seen the Peanut Butter Falcon yet?
9: I have seen the Peanut Butter Falcon. I liked it a lot. I'm very excited. They're screening it here. You know, I thought it was very real. I'm very authentic. And it had such a, not meaningful message, but a meaningful story. And nothing felt contrived or out of place, but it felt organic and a journey. And that's what cinema is supposed to be. And I feel that we haven't seen in a while, but I was very happy that with what was shown, that they captured this life very well.
6: This is Wayne reporting from the red carpet at the 2019 Outfest Legacy Awards Gala. It is a wonderful night, the 14th annual at that, and there's going to be plenty of people walking the carpet. It's going to be an exciting night.
10: My name is Gloria Bigelow. I'm a stand-up comic, and I am a writer on a new CBS show called Bob Hart's Abishola.
6: How many times have you been to this event?
10: This is my second time at this particular event, but of course I've been to many of Outfest. It's a very important part of being in L.A. is going to Outfest.
6: And what does Outfits and Legacy Awards, the preservation of LGBT films, what does it mean to the future of LGBT people and moving forward?
10: The preservation of our images is everything, because without an image, how will they know that you existed? So this particular thing is very important to me with Alpress, because sometimes they'll say, oh, were there gay people then? Or were there black gay women? Or who are these people? And sometimes they'll say, oh, you know, when they talk about the gay community, it's only white men. And so I think things like this are important because it shows the full spectrum of who we are as queer people, and this makes sure that it stays so you can't beat that. Like It's hugely important. I hate to be the person that says now more than ever, but I do feel like now more than ever, we have to make sure that who we are is humanized and also we have that history.
11: Hi, I'm Ari Swanzer. I'm a transgender supermodel from the oxygen show Strut, and I'm also the face of Trivada for PrEP.
6: And what does it take to learn how to strut?
11: I had a modeling coach named Junior Jean, and I'm still friends with him, but he absolutely taught me how to walk when I was I got like 18, and I've been on runways ever since. Now I'm 33.
6: Did you have all that confidence when you were 18?
11: Yeah, I was actually really confident. My confidence came from my household because I wasn't bullied until I left my house. You know, like most queer people leaving the house is kind of a crapshoot. But when I was home, I was supported. I was supported in my femme. I was supported in my queer. And I just knew that there were going to be more people that supported me if my family supported me. So I was always a little confident in that. What do you look
6: forward to tonight?
11: I'm looking forward to the speeches. (laughs) I'm looking forward to the food. I'm looking forward to the free champagne and meeting lots of new, interesting, like-minded people. Yeah. And what does the
6: preservation of LGBT films mean to you? What do you think that means to the future as well?
11: All of our stories are so valid, and so many have yet to be told yet because they always make us the butt of the joke, the punchline, the sidekick. We can be the lead. We can be the love interest. We can be everything in a movie, and so when we get real genuine stories that paint our lives as they actually are, not you know some cartoon version of what a gay person or a queer person is, I think it'll be a
0: lot better for everyone. I'm Dana Goldberg and I'll be doing some stand-up tonight and raising a lot of money for the Outfest Legacy Awards. This year, one of the things I've been talking about, Outfest's new empathy initiative. So the idea is that Outfest is going to bring some of the films that we create and that they screen at, let's say, our Outfest, because we have one of the biggest film festivals in the world for LGBTQ, but middle America's not getting this. So Outfest is gonna start taking some of the films, some of the ones that we've restored, get a park in the middle of a red state, And get a giant movie screen invite the community and so all of these lgbtq youth that don't necessarily see themselves represented in their own communities are going to be able to look up on a giant movie screen surrounded by the people they love and see themselves and hear their stories and the fact that the legacy awards and outfest is starting that i'm so excited about this initiative yeah
6: and what kind of jokes do you have for us tonight?
0: Oh, we're going to get a little edgy. Um, I think the, right now, I think there's a lot of people that are mad about what's happening, especially with this administration. And so I'm going to try and funnel some of that anger into humor and give some people a chance to have a release, but also hold some um, people in power t- right now to uh, their responsibilities. So I'm going to I'm going to speak in a little truth to power tonight in that room. So let's do it.
6: Thank you so much. You. All right. We'll see you inside. Alan Konigsberg, co-chair of the Legacy Awards, Outbest.
10: Marissa Ramon-Griffith, co-chair of the Legacy Awards, also co-president of the board of directors of Outfest.
6: And tonight is all about the preservation and raising money to keep the films safe for years to come to be viewed, correct? How important is that for LGBT people in the future?
10: I think it's incredibly important for the queer community because you want to be able to see yourself, the representation, but also for everybody to be able to see and understand and have empathy. Tonight isn't just about our legacy project. It's about all of our programs that Outfest does, which is all about creating visibility to queer stories and the storytellers who tell them, so that generations to come and the current generations understand that the queer community is just like everybody else.
6: And this is the 14th annual, so it's a big event. It keeps going and going. What's different this year?
11: This is probably
3: our biggest year ever. We're really excited about the Legacy Awards. OutFest has launched its empathy campaign. We're approaching our 40th anniversary of telling stories and really changing lives.
6: Thank you so much for being here for IMRU. We'll see you inside.
3: <laughs> All right, thank you.
6: Michael Williams, uh, co-founder of Scout Productions. Rob Eric, chief creative officer at Scout Productions. Awesome. And you also the um, exec producer for uh, Queer Eye, right? So what do you think makes it such a hit?
11: I think what makes it a hit is that we're telling these unique stories that are actually not so unique, we're just listening. So all of our guys and all of our women on the show, the reason they cry, the reason they get emotional is because we're paying attention to them. And I think right now with everybody being so divisive and a country that sort of just needs to be listened to, we're listening to people. And it just happens to be at the hands of five amazing gay men who you probably wouldn't think would be the person that would listen to you at that moment. So I think that's where the emotion comes from. I think that's where everybody really likes the show because we're just moving and listening to people because that's what we need to do right now.
6: Tonight, what do you look forward to? I'm
11: having salmon. I'm really hungry right now. I look forward to just being part of this amazing
6: community. Well, thank you for being here. Have fun inside. This is Wayne Sampson for IMRU Radio, and I'm reporting live tonight from the 2019 Outfest Legacy Award Gala downtown at the Vibiana. So for anyone asking where is Wayne, now you know.
2: Don't go away, we'll be right back.
5: Female impersonators in the Mummers Parade, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Philadelphia's New Year's Day Mummers Parade has deep roots going back to the early 19th century. When the city began officially sponsoring the event in 1901, it included awards for Best Female Impersonator. Among the best-known female impersonators was Frank Carter, who from 1908 to 1928 won awards in the Fancy or Special Features division. In a 1909 issue of the Philadelphia Record, a photo of Carter was labeled Belle of the Passyunk," since he represented the all-male club Passyunk. The article said Carter's gown looked as though it had been modeled in Paris. That year, he earned the top prize for being the most handsomest attired mummer in the whole parade, walking away with a special prize of $50 and a blue ribbon. This Rainbow Minute was researched by Philadelphian Bob Skiba and produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by me, Autumn Reinhardt Simpson.
8: Hello, I'm Jerry Jewell, Cousin Jerry from Back to Life and Jewel from Deadwood and the author of I'm Walking as Straight as I Can. And you are listening to I Am Are You Radio Magazine.
2: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and I am Ralph Cole Jr. You know, Ralph, I had the wonderful opportunity of going to North Carolina for Thanksgiving this year and spend some time with my nephew, his husband, and their two children. In the course of a year, they got married applied for their fostering and adoption certificates and got a call the very next day. And now they have two children. Wow! Their lives have dramatically changed. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. Well, here we are just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm with my nephew, Christopher, and my nephew-in-law, Justin, the Dickersons. In the course of a year for them, their lives completely changed, getting married and starting a family. Christopher, why don't you tell us how that process started with fostering to adopt? What was your first step in that process?
12: So we got married in October. October of? 2015.
2: 2017. <laughs> wow. Hey, Justin, how do you feel about that?
12: <laughs> I feel victorious.
2: Already two years into the marriage and you can't remember when he got married.
12: <laughs> so we got married in October and we started the adoption process a month later. Justin was not super excited at the beginning. But he got on board, and we went through the process in January and February of participating in all the classes that we had to do. We had our home study completed, and as soon as we were licensed, we got a call the very next day about our
2: now children. That's incredible that things moved along so quickly for you. It's wonderful to see your lives really taking shape the way they are. But there are concerns, there are nerves that come into this process when you want to grow your family. So, what were some of those concerns that you had?
13: I've never been someone like him who had the goals and the checklist and those things that I would just check off on. I didn't have that. I had people doing that for me a lot when I was growing up. I think as a result of that, I never had that lifelong dream of having children, and it always sort of scared me. Aside from just the nerves of having a kid was the fostering you know, aspect of it. Singularly, it was, you know, we're going to get these kids, we're going to get attached to them and have to give them up. Or there's going to be drama with the parents or, you know, any number of those unexpected things that you can't plan for. Luckily, we really didn't have a whole lot of. It was, it was pretty cut and dry.
2: And not to say, Christopher, that, that you didn't have uncertainty or concerns or questions for the unknown. For me,
12: I always imagined adopting. It was just a passion of mine. The more that I thought about it, I thought Justin was the right person to do that with.
2: The two of you together have created this forever home for what you thought was going to be one, now two. So what was your first step in that process?
12: Our first step is we... I actually reached out to a friend of mine who gave us an idea of what agencies would be most likely to work with us, easiest to work with. By us, I mean a gay couple. She directed us to Children's Home Society. They were very accepting, and I felt very comfortable with them from the very beginning. We reached out to them, filled out an application, and the process went very quickly from there. The social worker came, met us at our house. That's where we started, and then we had to take classes, like map training courses that went through all the steps of how the adoption goes how the foster system works how to take care of the children just a very broad overview of what it was going to be like to be a foster parent.
2: Justin what were some major changes in in society here in America that that gave you both more confidence this process would go positively in your favor and that you could move forward and
13: start your family. In line with our getting married the year before was marriage equality it was a big thing that you know we're being recognized so that I think helped give us the confidence to get married and also to start the family. But I think Christopher was a big factor in that confidence because that's something that he always wanted and he was so sure about and helped me feel confident and helped to get me on that same page with him. And I think the experience that we had with Children's Home Society only continued that because me going into it with no expectation of like how it was gonna go and what the flow was gonna be, you know, at each step, it just, it was pretty easy. I mean, for the most part, and I didn't feel a lot of adversity. We were pretty lucky, I think.
2: Christopher, once you settled on the organization, what kind of research did you have to do on them to make sure that that was the organization you wanted to go with?
12: Really, the, the research that I did was picking up the phone and calling and speaking with them directly and being very open and honest about our situation and making sure that they were comfortable working with a gay family. I think the biggest change that we've had is that legal marriage gives us legal rights to adopt in North Carolina and many other states where the law says a married couple, it doesn't say one woman, one man, it's married couple that can adopt a child jointly. So that's where the law allows for gay people to adopt. Not all agencies, of course, are going to have that written out specifically that they're not gonna allow gay couples, but some do. If they're especially if they're religious based. So that was one thing we made sure that we were working with the right organization. So
2: children's home society, how hands on were they with you in the process of getting your application filed?
12: The process is really you fill out the application, they come out before they approve you. So they come out and do their initial kind of check on the house, you know, asking questions, making sure that you're the right fit for their organization. From the very beginning we both felt very much like they were on our side. I feel like they pretty clearly said that. I mean, without saying, well, you know, we're going to make sure that, that you can adopt because you're a gay couple. It was that, you know, we accept all families, period. And so we both felt really comfortable with that. So the, the social worker came out, did her check with us. And then it was not long after that, I believe it's, according to what I understand it, is she, along with the board members, the person who is the president of the organization, they all kind of get together and approve the application to move forward. And then you move on to your classes and then all the other pieces that have to come after.
2: So did Children's Home Society work with you, just your social worker one-on-one, or was it a team effort?
13: I think it was a team effort, but mainly our social workers that they pair us with. They come out and they're the ones that we're corresponding with. Either they're coming out to physically visit us, or by phone, by text, by email, back and forth kind of letting us know what the next steps are and, you know, answering questions as we need it.
12: We had to participate in eight Saturday courses that were a range of topics from foster care to adoption and all different kinds of families, diversity was a big part of it, medical administration. There's so many pieces of training that you had to go through.
2: Did you have any case study scenarios and had to present a case study that you were given and how you would deal with that?
13: I don't remember having to present it. We obviously were very open about what our situation was in the class with everybody else. We kind of had to go around and explain what our situation was and what we were open to.
2: Christopher, can you add to that?
13: So we were actually in class with another gay couple,
12: lesbian couple. We had a a wide range of people. We had a lot of singles. There were definitely many Christian people who felt they were called to do it, similarly to how I feel. And, you know, I made that known, and, and we went in confident, just as we should have. We didn't have like where we had to act out a case, but we definitely did have in our course materials instances where children came from certain backgrounds or certain behaviors. What should we do was really the most important part.
2: Was there a scenario where there was a gay child and you, you were asked what you would do, how you would handle that, that situation of a child that you were fostering came out to you as identifying as gay?
12: Not that I recall, but we had a questionnaire that was done at home and submitted to our social worker as a part of our application that asked us what kinds of children, what kinds of experiences we would be willing to accept. And she said very clearly, do what you feel comfortable with. Don't feel bad if certain things are uncomfortable for you. I think that that's smart and that's the approach. If certain disabilities or certain things just feel out of your realm of possibility as a parent, I think you should be upfront with that. So there were very few things that we didn't check off the list, but it did have gay, lesbian, bisexual, it had on that list as well. So I'm sure that there are some people that maybe leave that unchecked. I mean, it's important that they want to have a child who is gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. If they don't, it's going to be hard for that child, and that's not the right place.
2: This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my interview with Christopher and Justin Dickerson. What was it like when you got that call that your application had been approved, and it was just a matter of time before you'd get the call, Christopher?
12: We got two calls. So we got a call that our foster application had been approved, which... I believe was done second and our adoption approval came through first. Often when people get that foster approval, they get a call within days, some within hours of the approval because there's so many kids in need. So we transitioned from one social worker to another one who was our placement social worker at that point. When I was able to talk to our placement social worker, she had found a file and felt like the children that needed a home would be a perfect fit for us. There were a group of children who needed placement, and two of them she thought would be a good fit for us.
2: Okay, now you're saying two of them. Now, when you went into this process fostering and also fostering to adopt? Because that's two separate applications, right? Two separate approvals. So some of the people in your class would only be going for a foster application and some would be doing both. Justin?
13: Yes, that's right. They had, I think, three options because they had an infant adoption as well as the foster and the adopt. So you could kind of pick one or all, which I think we did all.
2: Tell us about the duration of time between your applications were approved when you got that call and what was surprising about the call that you got. Christopher?
13: I
12: want to say that the reason we chose to do as well the foster route is because from all the research that I had done, all the reading I had done, all the social workers I had spoken to, they pretty much said if you're looking for children who are under five years old, you're going to have to go the foster to adopt route because of the time that it takes for children to go through the process of moving from foster children to pre-adoptive children that was the decision that we made was to to open ourselves up to the the possibility of having to foster a child and potentially losing the child or being able to foster and then move to adoption so we got our foster our foster application was approved and it was the very next day i got a call from our placement social worker who said that it was very early on but she wanted to know if we were interested in in this certain two children she said you know it's the weekend so we probably won't hear anything back till monday on monday we got a a a very long email and a picture of the children from their social worker, lots of social workers. So we kind of began the process there. There were other families that were also up for a chance to be able to foster them, which we didn't know at the time. There's a lot going on, lots of communication. You've got a lot of people involved, so you know how that makes things difficult. So after that process, I was able to get in contact with their their current foster family at the time to talk to her about the children, and we set up a time to meet with them, and I'll share the rest as we go along.
2: I'm flabbergasted, and I know this, but hearing it again, really it's overwhelming in a wonderful way to know that your application gets approved, and literally the very next day, you get a call.
12: Well, we were really surprised, too, because our initial social worker, I asked her very directly the last time I saw her, do you think it's going to be a while because we're gay? And she said it's possible. And I thought, you know, I, I like that you're being honest. And that wasn't the case. We are not in the country, but the children came from the country. So views outside of Charlotte tend to lean a more conservative way. So we were very surprised every single time I would talk to someone. I kept thinking this is the person who's going to have a problem with us, and that really never happened. And most of them made clear that they didn't.
2: Justin, where were you when you got the call that there were not one but two children available to foster and and hopefully adopt?
13: I think I was at work. I was at my desk and got the call. And of course, at that point, because we were waiting, every call that I got from Christopher, I had that like heart in my throat feeling because you kind of assume that. One of them, if not, the very next one is going to be that call. You know, I was at work kind of doing my my day-to-day and waiting for it. I got
12: the call. It was late, actually, on a Friday, which is why the social worker told me we would not hear anything until Monday. But I got the call, and I have to back up a little bit because we made sure that we were licensed for two children in our house. Because I talked to lots of social workers, and they said, if you want children under five, you're going to have to be licensed for two because that's just the way they come. And so we set up the room where we had two beds. We got licensed for two. And sure enough, that's the call that I get. So when I call Justin at four in the afternoon, I say, well, we have some placement news. And I think he said, tell me about the child. I said, well, such and such, their name. And there's also a sibling. But hold on. Let me finish. Let me tell you about them. And so that's really what started it. I think we were both nervous about that because really we had planned for one. And genuinely, I planned for one, too, in my head, but knew that from all the conversations I've had with people that two was likely.
2: So, Justin, you guys got approved and you get the call from Christopher saying there's one child and there's a sibling. So you're building your Noah's Ark, as it turns out, two by two. What's the next step for the children coming into the home?
13: It actually worked out well for the, I guess, nervousness that I in particular had is the fear of having to go immediately that night and and get the children and get them in our house. This was a unique situation because they were with a family already that they lived with, but that didn't ultimately have any plan to adopt them. But this family was going away for like a two week vacation or something. And they were looking for respite care for that period of time. And so they were looking for foster parents who would be willing to do that respite care, which meant that we were going to be able to spend time with them for a few weekends before actually having them in our home for two weeks and then forever, potentially. So it allowed that sort of gradual introduction process that I hoped for but didn't expect and was worried about.
2: Christopher, how long was the transition time from the respite care until the children were actually placed full-time in your home?
12: Well, after the call came through, I was able to talk with the the current foster family and set up a time for the kids to come over for the day. Uh, We had lunch at the house and probably only spent about an hour and a half with them. Then after that, we were told we were going to be allowed to do respite care at least three times. And then we would do an extended, like Justin said, an extended two-week care with them. So the first weekend that we did respite care, we actually took the children back on a Sunday, had a conversation with the foster mom at the time. She made it sound like that they were not planning to move the kids at all, like for a while. So we could be on this long journey. And, you know, we had to talk a lot about that. Is this something we want to keep investing in? Or do we want to maybe ask for something else? And we decided we were going to stick it through. And the very next morning, it was the strangest thing. I get a call and they said they've decided to move the kids. And we're like, what? So they didn't move the kids immediately. They still follow. We still followed through our process of doing our two extra, and I think we actually did three. We did every weekend after that with them. And then the two weeks that we were supposed to have them, they moved in that weekend. They moved in and stayed.
2: Let's just back it up just a little bit to that first meeting. What was that very first meeting like when you guys met your children?
12: Well, the first meeting... It was just crazy seeing their their little selves walk into our house that was prepared for them, kind of showing them the room that we hoped that they would stay in. It was very hard not to get all of your hopes up. What we knew about their case and what we had been told from our social workers is that this was most likely a foster to adopt situation. This was the best case scenario. And I want to say to anybody thinking that they're going to adopt and go through the foster adoption process, it's a wonderful thing, but we are not the norm. We got really lucky and so we like to tell people that often. Just because this happened to us does not mean it happens like this for everybody else because it doesn't. We just got very lucky. They're two siblings. They have their forever home as well. It doesn't always work out like this. It's very often that people get very far into these relationships and have to return the kids back because that's always the goal is reunification. As foster parents, we can't get lost in we want these kids. We have to be aware that It's what's best for them. We hope that that would be us, and that's what it turned out to be.
2: You've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on your radio dial and
3: appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and Director of Distribution and Sparkle, Vosh Bodhi.
2: Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs, and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. A little reminder. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast, where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us,
3: be sure to check out our promos and IMRU radio podcast on YouTube. We close without gay actor John Barrowman singing a song from Jerry Herman that has become a gay community anthem I Am What I Am from his 1983 musical, La Cage a Faux.
0: Bonne, Bonne nuit. nuit. I am what I am I am my own special creation So come take a look Give me the hook It's my world that I want to have a little
1: pride in My world and it's not a place I have to hide in Life's Life's not worth a damn Till you can say Hey world I am what I am I am what I am I don't want praise I don't want pity I bang my own drum Some think it's noise I think Each feather and each spangle. Why not try to see things from a different angle? Your life is a sham till you can shout out loud, I am.